0: Okay. Let's get started. I'm Dan Rundy. I hold the Schreier Chair here at CSIS. We're having a public event entitled More Than a Wallet, The Role of the Private Sector in Development. I'm very grateful to our friends at Chemonics, um for helping make this happen. I think it's a very timely and interesting topic. And I think that uh, we've, we've pulled together, I think, the right group to help us uh, unpack this conversation. Uh, I've been working on multi-stakeholder partnerships for 20 years, and um, it's not a new topic per se. But I think, for a variety of reasons, uh, the the salience of the of the topic has only increased over time. Um, uh, so I'm not going to get into long introductions of each of the folks, but um, I'll ask them to if they want to add some additional personal context. I will welcome that. But I think that you have um, you, you've seen, and from the announcement, the biographies. So. Um, look, the international community uh, predominantly sees the private sector as, as the answer to the gap in financing for the Sustainable Development Goals. But what other roles can the private sector play in development? Uh, oftentimes, large multinational corporations have been operating in some of the most fragile contexts for years. Often, offer can offer technical assistance. Um, you know, also as of course, the private sector supplies nine out of ten jobs in the developing countries and also is uh, you know, the source of foreign direct investment. We've got a lot of smart people in this audience. We've got some, uh, we've got some interesting panelists. Let's get, let's get started. So I'm gonna, I want to start with my friend Richard Crespin. Richard's affiliated here with CSIS and runs one of the most interesting consultancies I know on multi-stakeholder partnerships. So Richard, could we just start with what has changed in the last 10 or 15 years in the business sector? And what's changed in the last 10 or 15 years in, in the global development sector that's kind of making this a more salient conversation?
1: Sure thing. Thanks, Dan. I noticed that you said that the smart people are in the audience, the interesting right, people right. were on that's the uh, panel here. I guess we're... I think we're, you're very interesting. Well, I'm, I'm sure we're interesting. I'm not sure how smart we are. You guys will hopefully bring us, uh, help raise the IQ in the room. So thank you, Dan, for hosting us here at CSIS. Thank you all for being here. Thank you, fellow panelists, for being here as well. Um, So when when I think about what's changed in the private sector and what's changed in the development sector, I'm gonna point to three things on each side. Uh, On the private sector side, Uh, I I said earlier today that it had been 10 years since I was in business school. I was wrong, it's been 20 years since I was in business school, which is really a long time. Um, But over that time, when I was in business school, we were told that there were things called externalities, things that we didn't have to pay attention to, environmental impact, uh, labor practices deep into our supply chains, um, long-term consequences for products and product design at disposal and, and and recycling and so forth. Those were things we were explicitly told in my accounting class. We were told we didn't have to worry about those things. Since that time, that's changed. And we've been going through what I would call a, a, the great rethink of the role of many institutions in our society Um, from the state to religion to business, uh, but particularly around business, there's been a great rethinking of what is the role of business and what we can legitimately expect of businesses uh, and we're calling on them to do a lot more. And it's not a settled matter yet. It's still kind of up in the air. We're still trying to figure it out. Uh, but I think what we've also seen is a, is a real re-grappling with these issues on the part of leaders. Uh, Larry Fink's letter from a couple of years ago, from you know, the CEO of BlackRock, one of the largest institutional investors in the world, he basically told CEOs, get socially responsible, get environmentally responsible, or get out of the portfolio. Uh, that is a big deal. Uh, when I was doing this work for Corporate Responsibility Magazine, we used to rate companies on their corporate citizenship. We would often be. We would often engage with investor relations. Investor relations would tell us, "Why should we care about this? Uh, it's not really anything an investor has ever asked us." Well, guess what? Now the investors are asking. So that I think is the second big thing that has changed. The third big thing that I think has changed is that. At, We're seeing companies trying to really look at how they're developing new markets. When they're looking for double-digit growth, it's not gonna come from the Americas, it's not gonna come from Europe, it's not even gonna come from China. It's gonna come from places in Africa, from Latin America and Eastern Europe. So they're they're there, they're there, they're doing business there because they want what? They want markets, they want customers, they want long-term growth. So that's the third thing that's changed on that side. On the development side, what I've seen change is that uh, I think I think if you went back 20, 15, 20 years ago, there was a lot of skepticism of the private sector. Uh, what is this thing? I don't know it. Are these just a bunch of greedy companies? I often found that. Uh, Development people treated companies like um, like they were going shopping for puppies. Like small, small is okay. Small is cute. Small is cuddly. Uh, big, oh, big, I don't like. I don't like big. I don't want the big German Shepherd. I like the German Shepherd puppy, but I don't really like the the big company. I don't want to work with a big company. I want to work with small micro enterprises, entrepreneurs, sustain you know um, uh, subsistence farmers. That's great, but. All of the really That's where all the job growth is going to come, so, so it's, a, it's a legitimate focus, but we really have to be thinking about what's the long-term play here. And I think what you've seen with the, uh, I've had the ple- pleasure to serve uh, with Joanna on the Administrators Committee, administrator, the, uh, the Advisory Committee for Voluntary Foreign Assistance, ACFA, the Private Sector Engagement Subcommittee, where we helped to rethink the private sector engagement policy. And I think what you've seen is a shift from skepticism to the default. Now, I think the guidance that you're hearing from USAID Washington is we would like you, as much as you can, to think about engaging the private sector and really come up on an exception basis why you're not gonna work with the private sector. So that's the one big thing. The second big thing has been the administrator's focus on the journey to self-reliance, really looking at how do we develop long-term markets and long-term approaches that are gonna transfer responsibility for development objectives from philanthropic, which is still what o- o- official de- development assistance is, it's philanthropic, to permanent and really truly sustainable, and taking that kind of a focus. And the third has been an emphasis on co-creation. Um, my colleague, Sarah Glass, who was here, oh, there she is in the back, used to run um, the private sector engagement uh, office for USAID, and I think was really forward-thinking on how do we bring the private sector in early, and really, by early, I mean, like, at the conception level of what is the problem we're trying to solve, because guess what? They're trying to solve the same problems. I would challenge you, outside of of an active conflict, I would challenge you to give me a problem that is a development problem that is also not a business problem, and, uh, Please, when it comes to Q&A, give me a problem. We'll see if there's actually a unique thing that businesses don't also care about. So taking that perspective is what's also changed. Spoke very quickly. I'll see the rest of my time. Great. great,
0: Joanna, so you co-directed a, a major commission that we did here at CSS, our shared opportunity, a vision for global prosperity. Then you went to Chevron, and you were there for five years working on these exact issues. And now you're at a multi-stakeholder partnership focused on nigeria called ndpi so you've worn different hats and looked at this issue from a number of different perspectives over the last 10 years I'd welcome your thoughts
2: well thanks dan it's great to be here at this juncture and talking about this topic around partnerships and around the role of the private sector and i think that the thread that we started with um, almost 10 years ago with our shared opportunity, really started from the same place that we are today. And that is that the private sector has to be a critical part of creating jobs, income, wealth, and a tax base for governments to do well in each country. Um, Since I started at Chevron and now I'm with the Niger Delta Partnership Initiative, I've seen this in practice much more actively. So Chevron started NDPI about 10 years ago um, really as a result of the fact that it couldn't solve everything as one company. So Chevron had done something called the Global Memoranda of Understanding with fence-line communities. There was a lot of unrest, there were a lot of challenges, and they had extensive participatory agreements with communities about, okay, let's work on, let's take the money that we're investing, let's decide what we're doing about it together, and let's really calm down the operating environment. Those are still underway, they're still extensively negotiated, they're being negotiated actually over this course of six weeks with different communities. But that was a Chevron branded activity and it wasn't enough. And so Chevron looked at the fact that the entire Niger Delta region, which I would you have to kind of understand the geography, it's a little bit like Louisiana, um, the bayou country in terms of the rivers and and the, the water, sort of the water pervasive in all areas. So it's geographically distinct. And Chevron felt that it really wasn't possible to get at the economic challenges and the peace challenges, the conflict challenges without tackling a regional approach. But that regional approach couldn't just be Chevron doing one thing. So we have created an independent, independently governed organization in Nigeria to really do peace building and economic development that focuses on creating jobs looking at, you know, constraints to growth, looking at constraints to job creation, small and medium-sized enterprises in that region. My role is as a 501c3 to provide governance and oversight and, and programmatic support to the team in Nigeria, but ultimately this is about a big U.S. multinational company focusing on really locally driven small businesses and economic growth. So um, as I came to my sort of newish role and uh, as the subcommittee co-chair for the private sector engagement team at, at uh, ACFA, the Federal Advisory Committee for USAID, what, really, what we really looked at on that team was how is USAID thinking about private sector engagement? We had this new policy come out not very long ago. It was really an exciting culmination of the work that we'd all been doing over the course of the past decade but what we found was that there was sort of this concept that the private sector is a wallet. And and you would walk into a mission or sometimes you would walk into um, a department at USAID and they, they just, they want your check and they want to see how they can apply the dollars. And what we had to do was kind of peel it back and say, look, really private sector engagement is really critically about driving growth of a local private sector. And how can U.S. companies stabilize their operations, improve their operating environment, improve their business environment by driving the growth of local businesses and local local stability. So in terms of that uh, set of recommendations, from ACFA, from our advisory uh, subcommittee, we talked about some, some directions for USAID. We made three top-line recommendations, and all of this is online. You can find it at the USAID. We talked about leadership and culture, really changing the culture so that from, from headquarters all the way penetrating into the missions, looking at private sector engagement is, is a day-to-day activity, and it really is less about sort of a few big U.S. multinational companies writing checks, but really about more of a holistic look at how to grow the private sector locally in each country and with each mission. The second area we looked at was elevating the function of private sector engagement, making sure that you have high-level problem solvers who can walk around, this is what Dan used to do, I think, when he was at the agency, walk around the agency, Breakup challenges. Hey, I know you got you got something you want to do in Bangladesh. Our team on the ground says we can't do it. It's, it doesn't work with the procurement rules. I think I have a solution. So elevating the function and really um, attracting and recruiting talent was a really big part of our discussion. Um, and then the final, the third area was around talent and growing people's capabilities and growing those um, private sector mindset uh, beyond and within the procurement function was uh, our third sort of high-level high, high level recommendation from the subcommittee. So I just kind of covered a wide range of things, and we can dive deeper into any of those as we go forward. But um, overall, that's a bit of the journey over the past 10 years and sort of where things have gone and where we think that they can go looking forward.
0: Melissa, thanks for being here. You're with Commonics I think one of the best international development organizations in the world. You, you think about uh, global development and in and, and working with the private sector, working in, in partnership, multi-stakeholder partnerships. How does Chemonics think about this? Is this a new thing for Chemonics?
3: First, thank you so much, Dan. I just want to thank you for moderating the panel, for, for everyone here today with me, and just for all of you as well, um, for your interest in the topic and for really driving us to think about how we can do this and how we can do it better. So, Thank you very much. Um, at Kamanix, private sector engagement is uh, truly integral to all the work that we do. It, um, as you as you said, it's it's not something new to us. We've been uh, working with uh, in this industry uh, for the past 40 years. Um, and as a, a as an implementing partner to USAID, um, we consider it it's our responsibility, uh, and we're accountable to identifying the most sustainable and lasting solutions in all the work that we do. So it's it's really our responsibility to be engaged in this uh, discussion. Um, the USAID the private exe- uh, the private sector engagement policy um, that was just recently recently um, recently yes um, released um, really is it, it's good news in that it provides a framework for us um, to move toward um, to be more intentional in how we engage the private sector and so you know in the past you know private sector engagement again it was some it's it's we've worked with the private sector um, for for decades. Um, I believe that the difference is that um, as, as we were discussing earlier there there may have been a a discomfort or a, a reluctance uh, among some to believe that there could be a linkage between um, what a pri- you know a private sector's pursuit of profit uh, p- pursuit of profit and um, what society needs. And I think that uh, the good news is that this has changed for a variety of reasons, and um, and that we see that. Um, advancing or that the private sector addressing society needs actually as one of um, our colleagues said this uh, morning, it's good business. Um, Having a skilled workforce, having healthy uh, individuals, um, reducing pollution, you know all of um, improving our society actually uh, creates opportunities. It creates opportunities um, for more customers, Uh, it creates uh, market opportunity. Um, so today, um, in this discussion, what i 'm really looking forward to you know hearing from others is really discussing you know how we do this because it 's easy to, to to sit up here and talk about this but what what 's challenging is is the how and um, a few elements that I would say are um, that I believe are common in private sector engagement is that the idea starts with the private sector. The idea, um, private, what's important in in this process is that the private sector is engaged from the very beginning in terms of the uh, idea generation. Um, that there's a discussion on what is a what is a business's um, or a company's interest and what is in the community interest. Um, second, that there is a plan. Um, that there is a plan with very uh, defined outcomes. What is the outcome for the company? Um, What are our, you know, development speak? Um, What are the, the, the outcomes or the improvements that we want in our community or in our country? And third is, you know, how do we measure that? What kind of systems do we have that will show that what we're doing provides an additional impact? And um, finally, uh, a point that was also raised uh, this morning, which I truly believe in, is um, replication. So what have we learned in doing this? What didn't work? Um, What worked? Um, can this be tailored in a different community? Can it be replicated in another country? And I know through Commonics we have the great opportunity, particularly in the Middle East, um, in the area that I work, to be able to test certain approaches that have worked um, and that have that we have been able to replicate.
0: Thank you. Great, great. thank you. So, so Kai, thanks for being here. Um, you run a really interesting initiative called M Clinica. Tell us about that and how it, how it relates to this conversation. Sure. Well, first of all, good morning, everyone. Uh,
4: and thanks to Dan and his team for convening us and to CSIS for hosting us. So uh, my name is Kai Johnson, and as mentioned, um, I work for a group called Clinica. And um, CSIS and USAID and others have done a lot of research and categorizing and laying out the frameworks for public-private partnerships and for private sector um, strategy engagement. So I won't go into that. There's others who are much better equipped. Than me to discuss that. But I did want to narrow it down and talk about one particular sector, health sector, and particularly pharmacies. So to paint the picture, I know that this is probably not new to most of you, but um, many parts of the world, particularly in Asia, uh, pharmacies are mom and pop shops. They're paper-based, and they're often the first and only um, interaction point between people and the healthcare system. So if they go into a pharmacy and they ask the 13-year-old son of the pharmacist or the grandma who's watching the shop while the others are out, or even the pharmacist themselves, um, they present a cough, and if they're given a cough drop and told to go go away versus sent for an x-ray for TB or given medicines related to TB, it's a big, big difference for both that person and also for the community. Pharmacies are key to the um, healthcare sector, and um, it's often marginalized, ignored, and underfunded, undertrained. So, um, when pharmacies are ignored, uh, patients really suffer, and populations suffered. So, M Clinico, we're a Singapore based tech startup, and we're working in this healthcare space. And what we try to do is create a digital platform for pharmacies and pharmacy professionals. So between 2017 and today, we've um, connected 150,000 pharmacy professionals. And they reach about 150 million patients per month for, um, for, for a number of things. First of all, you can think of it as like LinkedIn for pharmacy professionals. So they can go there and do social media job listings, uh, get information. They can um, you know, scan a, a prescription and say, is this doctor saying penicillin or something else? Um, so they can crowdsource information. They can also do B2B purchases, so there's suppliers who are registered, so they can purchase directly through the app rather than getting on the phone and calling around. And they can also get credit through the app so they can build up their business as they go along. Um, of these 150,000 um, pharmacy professionals, and they're not just pharmacists, but also the um, accountants and the, off- the pharmacy manager, everyone who's involved in it. They um, of the 150,000, about 76,000 or 76% 76, um, are women. So a lot of these are, like I said, mom and pop shops, but it's actually the mom who's running it. And uh, when they're sick or they're not um, available for training, then uh, they miss out. Uh, Through the app, they can also get training, continuing professional education. It's the largest provider of medical training for um, pharmacies in Southeast Asia. So um, I think it is very much in line, though, with some of the um, strategies we mentioned before. If you think about um, the administrator's um, enterprise-driven development, although we are an enterprise, we're also working to enable enterprises these pharmacies and if it's done well they grow they help they uh, prevent uh, prevent diseases and pandemics and also help to improve uh, the economy as a whole. So to summarize we're private sector approach which connects supports and scales up existing local enterprises local businesses and contributes to improvement of public health and also just to reiterate this is at no cost to the host government and no cost to the local pharmacies themselves. So I look forward to discussions and thanks for the opportunity, Dan.
0: Mike, Michael Eddy, thanks for being here. You um, had a 20-year foreign service career overseas. Your last posting was Brazil. Um, welcome to Washington. I think, uh, <laughs>
1: um,
0: I think it's going to be interesting. Uh, really glad you're here. And um, you Tell us about your new role and tell us about how AID is thinking about private sector engagement.
5: Thank you very much, Dan, and to CSIS for the invitation, to the panelists for the vibrant conversation this morning. As mentioned, my name is Michael Eddy. I'm the private sector engagement coordinator for USAID, and as I think you've heard, we, we have a policy, uh, private sector engagement policy, and uh, we've, as an agency, always embraced... Uh, working with the private sector over recent years and decades, but I think uh, we can say that under uh, the leadership of Administrator Green that's been uh, referenced here and with this private sector engagement policy, uh, we're looking to improve and we're looking to to step it up a notch. And What I'd like to do is talk a little bit about the why, how, and what of this policy a little bit, very quickly, hopefully provoking a a conversation for the Q&A Portion. So, if we we've talked a lot about the why it's so critical to work with the private sector, but if we just reflect on um, financial flows to the developing world over the 55 plus years that USAID has existed, when we got started in the early 1960s, 80% of financial flows to the developing world were development assistance or ODA. <clears throat> Today, that number is 10%. Um, so as USAID has evolved, as the situations have evolved, something that the, uh, our administrator called the, the silent evolution, uh, the, the numbers have flipped. The script has flipped. It is the private sector that is leading uh, investment in the developing world and in development solutions. And from our perspective, it's not just the, um, also as we've discussed today, you know, it's not just the money, it's not just the wallet. It's the innovations, the ideas, Um, and often identifying the appropriate technology at the appropriate time. So when we think about the impact that mobile banking has had, or mobile um, health solutions in in India and other contexts. We talked about connectivity and how that's transforming lives, and actually in our recent um, success with USAID, with Power Africa, Uh, The private sector has led identifying mobile renewable energy solutions and connectivity, so it's transforming lives in rural uh, communities, um, um, uh, households that are off the grid, uh, transforming lives. So the private sector is critical. Uh, We've recognized that, uh, and the policy, it's what the policy is about. We're trying to move, um, as I mentioned, kind of towards a cultural shift, so it's not just a new way of doing. Uh, of programming, but it's a, a way of doing business. It's a new modus operandi for USAID that is sincere. It's a work in progress as we've also discussed some of the uh, ups and downs. It's not the same in every context, but I want to uh, mention two two ways among many that were um, of the how that we're rolling this out. So we are uh, training. Uh, all of our staff across the the globe in 101 plus uh, um, uh, operating environments and missions. We have a basic private sector engagement course. We have an advanced mobilizing finance and private capital course that we've been uh, implementing throughout the course of the last year and we're looking next year to do more tailored um, uh, training and approaches for our staff um, in in mission specific context. Uh, Perhaps more importantly, uh, we're putting mechanisms in place to help our colleagues be successful in the field. So we can help um, from very basic, uh, what we call private sector landscape analysis, helping missions abroad figure, figure things out and see what, what, what actors are out there, where there may be deals, uh, all the way along a compendium to uh, more sophisticated market assessments. Uh, we help missions actually structure, uh, I- um, uh, impact funds, development bonds, other financial instruments that engage and leverage the private sector's innovation and resources. Um, and we also uh, can provide tr- uh, advisory services for transactions, helping uh, mis- our missions close deals. So we're evolving in the way we th- we're, we're thinking. Uh, but wh- so the, what is the what? The, the what of how this looks on the ground? Um, I have a whole list here of, of, of examples that we're very proud of. I'm going to focus on two um, key, I think, exemplary um, uh, results that reference some of the things we've been discussing in the panel. So in, um, in women's entrepreneurship, uh, we recently signed a, a, a deal with Women's World Banking. We're gonna put forward a half million dollars of catalytic capital, of first loss type capital. We're gonna invest in business incubation uh, and, and, and acceleration. And uh, this is all coming together in the Women's World Banking Asset Management Fund, or WAM, which has got a $100 million fundraising goal for women entrepreneurs across Africa. So this is something that's in the early stages, but is exemplary of where we're trying to go. We have another um, entrepreneurship uh, supporting program called PACE that's a couple years In operation, it's already mobilized $121 million of private capital. We're helping 800 small enterprises, primarily women-led businesses throughout the world, working hand-in-hand with small business incubators and accelerators. So um, these are the kinds of examples that are emerging that we are excited about. A final one, uh, Dan mentioned that I got a connection to, to Brazil. There, um, we're uh, facilitating investment in biodiversity conservation, an area that we saw was significantly lacking. Our mission priority in Brazil was biodiversity conservation for the Amazon. The gap was there was no capital, no business acceleration or support for those sustainable enterprises who live in the Amazon and who are trying to uh, have a sustainable um, livelihoods for their families. And we think are our key pillars for a sustainable Uh, economic model for the Amazon. So our countries announced the uh, first of its kind, Amazon Biodiversity Impact Fund. This is a case where USAID will put $15 million of catalytic capital uh, up front, will be junior shareholders. We're looking to raise 100 million dollars for sustainable enterprises in the Amazon, which we think is critical to the solution. Um, I'll leave it there. wanted to give Great. it at least
0: enough seeds and samples to yeah. uh, provoke discussion and interest. Thank you. All right, so well, I know there's a lot of interesting and smart people in this audience. I'm going to go directly to the audience because I'd like to get at least 10 comments from the audience, so I'm, but I'm going to call on some folks first. I want to hear from Deirdre White. I want to hear from Tony Carroll. I want from Aleem Walji, and I want from Rich Bissell, in that order. So, uh, my, bring, bring the microphone up to my friend Deirdre oh. White, please.
6: Oh. Sure. Uh, thanks, Dan, thanks everyone. Deirdre White with Pixera Global. Uh, I guess I just wanted to bring another example to the table of a company that is bringing much more than just a wallet, um, and that is Morgan Chase. I don't know if anyone is here from JPMC? No, Uh, So JPMorgan Chase five years ago working in the city of Detroit um, with a program uh, called the Detroit Service Corps Program. So they made a $100 million commitment to the city of Detroit and that $100 $100 million commitment included grants to local organizations that were working on workforce development. Um, And workforce development was an issue that JPMC decided was uh, a social issue that was absolutely material to their business. So that's why $100 million investment in these organizations Um, They then said, let's also invest our human capital. So we'll put the $100 million cash on the table, but in addition to that, we're going to send multiple teams every year of our top talent to go to work with these organizations to ensure that they're able to actually make the best use of that financial capital. On top of that, they also looked at how they could invest in technology for these organizations, either bringing in their technology professionals to help them use technology." better or what are the technological solutions we have at jpmc and then i guess i would say on top of that you know we don't want to limit to just three things but also they brought so many new partnerships to these organizations so thinking about who what are the partnerships you have um, as corporations that could actually help to drive progress towards the issues you're focused on uh, and finally I would say they brought influence and you'd have only to look at the Business Roundtable letter uh, from from a month ago to say that Jamie Dimon is now using his influence to actually affect these same issues. Um, And I know we're talking about globally, Uh, they are doing more of this work globally, but they're also replicating in the US now. So they did 100 million to Detroit, I think they're doing 40 million to Chicago, same model. Just started in DC, South Bronx, Bronx. and then we wanna look at what we can do um, more together globally. So I just wanna give that example of lots of different ways
0: you can invest. And this one. And then I'm
7: going to make this into, I guess... Tony Carroll. I'm an adjunct professor Please, at SICE, and I do a lot of work in the mining natural resource area for 30 or 40 years. Um, what I've seen in the, last, in the arc of my professional life in the mining sector uh, 30, 40 years ago, the whole notion of corporate social responsibility was an add-on, if even noticed, in the industry. What we found in the last probably decade at least is a complete sea change in how these companies, natural resource companies, are positioning their CSR concerns or ESG concerns at the fore rather than at the end of their business model. In fact, they won't even go into a, a venture if they don't feel comfortable in being able to manage those sort of non-core aspects of their mining operation. The past administration, for reasons which certainly are, are defensible in, in the global climate change environment that we're in, we're, we're, less, we're, we're more reluctant in engaging the mining industry in part because You know, there were some bad actors out there and they wanted to reputationally avoid dealing with. But what, what, what Michael brings is what I think the interstitial tissue that's needed between these large resource companies and the local communities in which they operate. Johanna represents a great example, and has been doing this work for years, of Chevron. But Chevron has been a global thought leader in this area for a long time, and, and it's no surprise that they've made such great accomplishments. But there are a whole cast of companies, unfortunately not many of them American, many of them Australian, Canadian, South African, uh, and other uh, uh, destinations or origins. But I think the idea of, of that sort of creative middle that, the, that USAID and some of its participants and contractors can provide is to me a very timely uh, you know, uh, initiative. and I. I think that you'll find a welcome audience in the resource sector.
8: Thank you, Dan. Thank you for my colleagues who we worked together on the private sector engagement strategy as well. So, on on Monday of last week, we signed a very significant thing called a new partnerships initiative with, with USAID. And I'm just gonna give an example of why I think it's so important. So this idea of, so uh, sorry, from the Aga Khan Development Network, we have 80,000 people working in 35 countries, um, most of which actually work in the private sector. Um, but when we, so when we went to Central Asia, for example, look at the energy sector. We looked in Northern Afghanistan, where only 5% of this area is, is electrified. So 95% of the population has never seen power. So we said, we have to do something about that. So we began not so much by saying, what does the private sector do? Though eventually, that's what we did. But we began by saying, "What's the problem we're trying to solve, and how is it going to be solved, and what is the ecosystem that has to be created?" So we said, "Generation, electric power generation, is a very important part of that." So we invested in that. And then we said, "But distribution and um, kind of uh, transmission can't be done by the private sector alone." We we looked at a at a a price tag of $900 million to be able to do that in that region across Central Asia. So we said, how do we work with the governments of those countries? How do we work with the World Bank? How do we work with USAID? And how do we leverage the private sector for purpose private sector experience that we have to make the ecosystem work? So over the past, we've been doing this for close close to 15 years. And we recently won an award from, I think it was a UN agency, for being one of the most interesting private-public, not-for-profit partnerships in the world. But we realized that while the private sector has a clear role in driving this process, if we ignore the role of other actors in the system, we'll get stuck. So that's kind of my contribution.
0: Thank you, perfect. Rich Bissell, thanks for being here.
9: Uh, yeah, I'm Rich Bissell. I'm a senior advisor here at CSIS. So my, my question, uh, which actually needs only a small comment to introduce, um, is based upon some interviews I've been doing recently with the private sector, with development professionals, and with the nonprofit sector um, about uh, the question of how we know that these trends, which the panelists have articulated, um, are really being... Um, EXECUTED AND THAT COMMUNITIES CAN AGREE ON HOW TO MEASURE WHAT'S HAPPENING. Uh, I FIND THIS TO BE VERY FRUSTRATING IN TERMS OF ALL PARTIES TO THIS ISSUE OF DEVELOPMENT AND PRIVATE SECTOR COOPERATION, WHICH IS OF of EITHER um, CLAIMS OR CRITICISMS THAT ARE ALMOST ENTIRELY QUALITATIVE IN NATURE. AND IF I FOUND ANYTHING THAT that WAS WISTFUL ON THE PART of, OF corporate leadership is that they'd like to find in the area of sustainability and good corporate performance something equivalent to the generally agreed accounting principles, the GAAP system. Now, we have in place, as I think everybody in this room knows, various ideas, indexes, and, and reporting systems that have been created, but there is no single measure for people to agree upon. And so I wondered if the panel could comment on that Um, because if we're really going to embed and institutionalize change, we're going to have to agree on what progress we're making. Thank you.
0: Okay, I'd like each of the panels to react to whatever they've heard. I'll start with you, Richard, and I hope you'll also respond to Richard.
1: Yeah, um, uh, Richard's point is exactly the point I was trying to make at the beginning. Uh, Before doing what I do now, I used to run Corporate Responsibility Magazine, and we rated companies based on their uh, corporate citizenship, and the main criticism, One of the main criticisms we heard was that there is no standard. And if you're, if you're an investor trying to evaluate companies based on their citizenship, uh, that's a really difficult thing to do. And I don't have an easy answer for what to do about that because I think what we are going through is, a, is this big grappling as a society about what is the role of business in society. And that is not, settled. It's not a settled matter. That's a matter that will eventually, hopefully, be settled probably in law and regulation, uh, but it isn't settled now. But we do probably need some kind of adjustments to GAAP. Um, there are many contenders out there. There's uh, SASB, um, Sustainable Accounting Standards Board, that is trying to do that. GRI, the Global Reporting Initiative, a number of organizations are trying to do that. But the fact that I said that there are a number of them is part of the problem. Um, I was part of the problem back then. There's, there's probably like a 1,000 rating agencies out there that do this kind of work. Um, it's gone from a from a boutique. It's, it's, yeah, it's a boutique business now. Now it's an employment program. It's an employment program. Uh, so somehow coming to, to 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 grapple with that is going to have to be part of the solution. The only other thing I'll say, and then I'll, I'll turn it over to my other panelists, is one of the things I'm hearing in, in a number of the examples that were just shared I know the title of the panel is more than a wallet. I would say we also need to think about a different wallet. We've been focused. How many people here work for a company? Okay, maybe about a third third of the room. So for those of you who don't work at a company, I think you would think about this when you're thinking about how to engage with the private sector. The first thing you need to think about is where is all of the money? The money is not in philanthropy, and it's not in corporate responsibility. The money is in payroll. The money is in taxes that they pay, foreign direct investment that they conduct, trade flows that they provide, training and development, supply chains. That's where all the money is. And if you really want to create lasting economic development, get them to be able to pay better taxes. Get them to be able to pay decent payrolls. Get them to be able to pay uh, for training and development in those countries where you're trying to work. That's the real opportunity. It's it's, it's over there. It's not in trying to get them to write uh, a single big check. And coming to um, Melissa's question about how we do that, uh, if you don't work at a company, I would suggest thinking about reading and listening differently. Do you read the Financial Times? Do you read The Economist? Do you read The Wall Street Journal? Do you go to business and industry events? Do you read the, the annual reports of the companies you're trying to engage with? Understanding their needs and thinking about how you can solve a business problem with them that's also gonna lead to a development solution, that's, really the, that's where the how starts, in my let me
0: opinion. Just, let me just add one thing to Richard, uh, Rich Bissell's uh, comment. One of the things I've been shocked by uh, is the uptake by big global multinationals of the Sustainable Development Goals. Now, I would posit that there are 20 members of the US Congress who know what the Sustainable Development Goals are. I have a hard time keeping in my head, I'm Catholic, I can hardly keep the Ten Commandments (laughs) straight. I have a hard time memorizing the 17 goals and the 169 sub-indicators. I would just say that it's a a big, but I would say, I think it's somewhat of a response to sort of this problem, which is there is a vacuum how do we collectively talk about and describe what the problems are, and how do we collectively find a way to measure or track progress? Uh, there's been sort of this sense of qualitative measurement in the SDGs has been popular because I think of a failure of the point that you were raising. That's that's a thesis. And other folks may agree or disagree. Joanna.
2: Okay, well, that was a lot of comments and a lot of insights um, from from all of you who spoke. So I I think just a couple themes that I've heard running through echo what you're saying, Deirdre. Employee engagement is huge for companies and, and having ways to have your employees connected to what you're doing and to your purpose is really critical, as, as is the shift to the U.S. You know, we've we've been in a really dominant international landscape for a long time, and companies are really focusing on the U.S. more, more and more. And, um, Tony, your point just about the extractive sector and... I will say that, that everything that I do, everything we do with in the Niger Delta with NDPI is really focused on creating a stable operating environment. It's just we you know, that constant engagement plays a critical role in that operating environment. So I think you're right. And Aleem, thank you for your role on the private sector engagement subcommittee. And and I think when we were writing this report, our shared opportunity, one of the key things that we talked about that ran through all of our conversations was we can't just talk about the private sector. The private sector is a piece, but we have to talk about all the critical enabling parts of the private sector, a local, um, nonprofit sectors, civil society, government, ca- government capacity, all of those pieces play a role. But, I, but I'm going to linger for a minute, Rich, on your point about measurement because this is really challenging. NDPI has more statistics and more metrics than you can possibly imagine. And I'm talking about one organization, not sort of the macro um, ranking and, and rating piece but we have a lot of statistics and a lot of metrics. We know how many farmers we train, we know how many peace builders we have, we know how many you know, communities we've, we've, we've been in and been communicating with and connected to. But we've reached a point at NDPI and, and at PIND, our Nigerian partner, where, where we keep getting the question from our board: well, yeah, well, What does that mean? What does it add up to? What's the impact? And when you look at what USAID is focused on and what all of the development agencies are focused on, they, they want to get at global issues, they want to get at global impact. But but we're measuring, we're counting numbers, and we're counting sort of activities, and so it is there is no one way to do that. I think that one approach is really a long and um, intense dialogue with people. And this is kind of what we've done. We've just gone through a strategic planning process for NDPI where where we literally interviewed hundreds of people and and, uh, we did social media surveys to get hundreds of pages of data to say, really, what do you think? And how do we negotiate our contract with 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 this community in terms of what we're doing, why we're doing it, and how we're doing it, so that everybody can see themselves in that, but that that's not just counting a bunch of numbers. it's a much deeper approach, and it's much more time consuming. it's also much more expensive so at at some point I, I know the unified field theory of mm-hmm. um, of measuring and monitoring and impact is is probably about as Reachable as a real unified field theory would be. We're, but we're available
0: can, to do a study I here. I know on you it.
2: are. Yeah, we could do more <laughs> studies. But but it's a real it's a real question, and at some point we have to make the leap from numbers to impact. Um, so so I think that as this field progresses, that's an area
3: to really focus efforts on. Thank you. Um, I heard a lot of uh, issues raised, but what I. I would. I thought I would address one, and hope that it's yes, relevant. Um, in terms of, you know, how can we narrow? I don't know if it's a gap or um, create. Look at creating these links between addressing society needs and also um, furthering a private sector or a business's interest. And what I thought I would do is um, uh, give an example of this and talk about the power of the dem- of a demonstration effect. And so. Um, in uh, in a few places, a few countries uh, in the Middle East, in Jordan and in Lebanon, and uh, soon in Tunisia, um, uh, USAID in collaboration with USAID, we have been working with TripAdvisor. Um, so you know, a unique you know unique organization, the largest of its kind, 500 million users, um, in Jordan to advance uh, tourism uh, outcomes and to increase the number of uh, arrivals and to divers- diversify. The type of um, tourism um, that Jordan has, and also um, outside of some of the larger areas, to some of the smaller towns, um, USAID and uh, Comanex uh, uh, facilitated a partnership uh, with TripAdvisor, in which we brought uh, TripAdvisor um, in partnership with the Jordan Tourism Board, um, and they uh, their uh, contribution was you know about a value of a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar online promotional campaign uh, for Jordan Jordan and a two-day boot camp um, in which uh, they brought uh, hoteler, uh, you know, hotel industry, digital marketing professionals um, together to talk about some of the latest techniques, you know, in tourism. Um, one of the, the outputs of that, and there were many, is that, um, and and you know, I I was in Jordan uh, a few uh, months ago in, in July, and the head of the Jordan Tourism Board told me, you know, Melissa, we you know we were going to pursue this kind of conservative strategy, and instead you know through TripAdvisor and through just it wasn't even TripAdvisor it was the convening authority that TripAdvisor has to bring the excitement that it brings to bring different groups together that might not talk to each other around the table to talk about you know what can we do to to advance this sector Uh, and uh, one of the outputs of that was uh, to think about bringing influencers so social media influencers Um, so rather than engage in some you know paper-based kind of tour. Tourism assessment. Um, the Tor- Jordan Tourism Board um, thought about bringing influencers or social media individuals um, to Jordan, have them travel to some of the as salt, some of the you know other areas off the beaten path, and write about it. And it had a direct impact um, on, um, on on reaching different audiences for tourism in Jordan. Now, in terms of demonstration effect, and also. Um, you know, engaging the private sector in Lebanon, we, um, in, with funding from USAID, um, there's a, a Lebanon uh, Enterprise Development Project that's looking at w- that that focuses specifically on working with uh, firms, on addressing the binding constraints to um, small, uh, medium enterprises uh, throughout the country, um, to drive sales, to cre- increase market opportunities. And uh, one of the activities that they have is something they call lead talks, um, in which um, it's not the project that speaks, it's the participating firms, and I believe that this is critical in private sector engagement, that it's the private sector talking about what the impact is. not you know, me necessarily, or um, it's a private sector talking about what um, engaging this type of expertise, investing in it, what impact it had on their business. So through this led talk, um, a couple of the smaller tourism-related businesses were talking about, hey, you know, I mean, it's great what we're doing for our business, but there's just some sector-related issues in tourism development, and we need some help kind of outside of You know, something greater than the sum of the parts. And um, it's through that that um, we thought, well, why don't we replicate and bring TripAdvisor uh, to Lebanon? Let's look into the possibility of that and see with their convening authority um, if they can bring the industry together to talk about trends in the Lebanon tourism um, industry. And they did. Um, they came to Lebanon. They they spoke about. They they provided a presentation about trends in the, in uh, in in the industry and in tourism market in Lebanon. And that's really changing the way um, that the industry is thinking about um, about um, digital tech, digital um, media efforts, social media influencers. So I really believe that there's this demonstration effect that um, you know, it's important to measure, we need to have outcomes, but there's also telling a story and showing that it works and creating excitement about it. Great.
4: I'll decline on this round and pick it up on the next round and I yield
0: back the balance of my All time. All right, I love that. Modeling good behavior on a panel, that's good. Okay, Michael Eddy. Thank you. I'll try to keep it brief, but I did find the interventions
5: uh, fascinating. I'm going to start with and focus on uh, Tony Carroll, and because I thank you for raising um, mining and, and extractives and, and the polemic therein, because I think it's a very interesting case study. And and there's one particular example that I, I think is illuminating or an exemplary example, if I will, maybe redundant. But in, in Brazil, again, where I was uh, serving most recently, You had a scenario where extractives and other, um, the laws on the books were good. If you were a large extractive industry or an infrastructure project, et cetera, et cetera, the law said that you had um, royalties to pay, you had environmental taxes to pay, you had a significant amount of responsibility to the communities where you were potentially having an impact. Uh, But the the, the theory then, the, the law was that it's in practice, those um, high levels of uh, remunerations, royalties, taxes, et cetera, went through the government and by their own admission, never got to the communities. So the communities suffered the environmental impact. Didn't see any benefit from this going on. There were no jobs really created locally, and they ended up pissed off. And so, the, and the companies that were investing were upset because they're paying twice because they pay all the taxes, but then their communities are still upset about this. So we uh, partnered with Minas São Rio Norte (MRN), which is a, a large uh, Brazilian extractive, which is actually a consortium of many large actors, and they have a, a great model. Not only. Uh, do they have examples where they do, to the T, um, remediation of environmental impacts for their bauxite extraction, meaning they, they re, um, uh, restore the entire biodiversity and it's been scientifically documented. Uh, but they also were willing to work with us on a pilot of saying, all right, how do we get these funds to the communities? Um, They invested with us in a a foundation in a a traditional um, society, the Quilombolas who were, it's a long story, but these are uh, former freed slave communities uh, of of Brazil that have traditional rights over, over land um with us and with a a local partner we established a a foundation where they could invest uh, their money directly so they did pay twice but they did it towards in a a consortium uh, with these communities involved where they were having a say where these uh, resources were going the uh, the beauty of this is when i met with the minister of environment of brazil for our kind of a courtesy visit this is the number one problem that he raised we've got all this money coming in and it doesn't get to the communities we got a solution. So we started on a pilot, we're working bringing together the government entities and I'll I'll leave it at that, but I just uh, flag it as an issue uh, with two lessons. One, um, it's not about the money, it's not about the wallet. You had a problem, everyone recognized it it it, it was a problem, the communities, the companies and the government and us, but USA's role was as a facilitator and convener because we had the trust of the different parties. So it made a lot of sense, and that's why I think it's a really important example. Um, another lesson I think that you are getting at, <clears throat> Tony, is... We shouldn't be afraid of working with the mining companies. We have to take risks. And I think that's part um, why I I give kudos to our administrator and to this policy, because it's creating an enabling environment where we can take some risks and do some things differently. Uh, We want more of our peers to do this uh, around around the world. And that part is a work in progress. But we did take some risks. And I think they were mitigated risks. And um, they have a significant payout. And I don't know. I'll I'll stop there. I did want to. Respond to Rich just about the, the, the challenges and the lack of, as I understand, kind of systematic approaches to bringing
0: things together. But we're and working Michael, on that too. And Michael, if somebody here wants to talk about partnering with AID, you're the guy, right? Well, one, one of many, yeah, but yeah, sure, yeah. we can start okay, with but, you. But in addition to that, there's a, you have job openings right now for yes, the private sector engagement team. We do. Check we're, out we're USA can, if someone jobs. Wants to, go, are, wants to go do that, there are six where, where openings.
2: You can a, use a, me as a reference. You're going to send me a, a link least, to that. The, you're going to send me a link to
0: that, and I'll put it on my LinkedIn. Okay? Okay. So you'll send it to me, but you should talk to Michael afterwards about that if you're interested in working on these issues. Richard Crispin, yes, sir. No, thanks for that, because the point is this is a work in progress in implementing this policy. Small team, we are trying to step
5: up to, to do better. Thank you for that.
1: I just wanted to pull out three things that I heard in in all that. I want to come back to what Aleem said a minute ago, and it really comes down to, and I I think you heard it in um, Joanna's comments, Melissa's comments, and in Michael's comments, is about focusing on what we do best uh, and not doing the things that we don't do well. And it's not to say that the private sector is the only actor. It's certainly not. There are things that only governments can do or that governments do better than the private sector does and trying to leverage those things correctly. But what I've seen so often, and I think, Melissa, your case illustrates, is where development programs try to reinvent the wheel. So rather than relying on industries that exist or people who know how to do stuff, like social media influencing or tourism, right, go to those industries. Don't, don't try to recreate the wheel. And the thing that you know, USA does really well is by bringing together uh, actual you know, convening these people across sectors in ways that they can't do on their own, either because of antitrust concerns or, or competitive issues. So you know, those examples, I think, are really powerful in illustrating that. The last thing I'll say, and it, it loose again back to Rich's point, and I think also to this point about extractives, uh, James Carville said uh, he wanted to come back in his next life as the bond market because everybody fears the bond market. Well, well why, why is that? Well, the bond markets set the price at which you can borrow stuff. And I don't wanna come back as the bond market, I wanna come back as an actuarial table. Because actuarial tables price risk, that's Mm -hmm. what they do. And that's what the bond market listens to, they look at how you price risk. In those cases in Brazil, there's been some bad actors in Brazil who have done some some not so great things in the extractive industry, but they have a really hard time now getting insurance. Uh, And when they can't get insurance, they can't get borrowing, they can't get funding, and they're not gonna grow. Versus the good actors who can get reduced costs, to finance their activities. And uh, the more you can can shift the balance so that you can clearly identify where the risks are and price those risks, uh, that I think will help to set um, the new course. All right, let's get four
0: more, please.
1: Hands, Michael Levitt, um,
0: my friend in the back there, the professor, and let's see, this woman here and this woman he- in the back, okay? So we'll start with Michael Levitt.
10: Hi. <clears throat> Just a couple of things. First, this reference of the private sector, there is no one private sector. The interests of Chevron may be aligned with the interests of their supply chain and lots of people in Nigeria. But it isn't the same as the pharmacy companies in Asia, these little tiny companies. And how you approach it is so different. So we do a disservice to the private sector by referring to it as the private sector. I don't have an option. The other th- let me also say I think it's dangerous when we conflate that we used to get all our money from ODA and I'm a private sector guy ODA overseas development overseas assistance. development money and now it's pupkis it's by the way if you need help with the Ted Commandments Yom Kippur starts tonight and we exactly Yom Kippur that. starts. thank um, you but the the um, the, the uh, ODA money is not only less in percentage; it's just less. I mean, there's less of it to go around. So, what are we going to do with it? Also, at least with ODA money, the it started with first do no harm, right? ODA money it may have done harm sometimes, but it started with first do no harm. That has nothing to do across the board with private sector investment. It may do no harm. Many companies don't want it to do any harm. But it's not the same driving influence. And I think it's dangerous to conflate them. And then last, I'm stunned that the words uh, climate change came up. Let me pose a question. Brazil, if one of Richard's less than noble companies came to AID and said, we're going to keep doing non-noble things but we, we're we willing to give you $10 million to help the native populations, do you care about the impact of the company on climate change? Is that a driver in yes, no decision making going forward? That's the easy question.
0: Thank you, Michael. <laughs> All right, my friend, the professor. All
9: right, <clears throat> uh, Dick America, Georgetown School of Business. Uh, Joanna, you mentioned the board of the Niger Delta uh, asking a pertinent question about the meaning of the numbers. Uh, There are boards of uh, directors in large and small public and private organizations, Africa, my focus, but all over the world, and most of them don't perform very well, which is part of the problem. They don't really govern properly. There's training available for that. Uh, I'll make a, little pitch for the value alliance, which trains boards of directors and would like corporate uh, support so that uh, the cost of that training can be absorbed.
0: Thanks, Richard. Okay. My friend here.
11: Thank you. Uh, my name is Azrin and I'm with a small um, development company called Eye4DI. Eye. And um, I want to advocate for a different approach to private sector slightly, in addition to the one that we're traditionally accustomed to. Um, so I want to tell you a quick story. Uh, when we were first founded, we thought we were going to work with USAID and NGOs, just like all development companies do. Uh, but serendipitously, uh, a colleague from a private sector company, very large multinational corporation came to us and said, hey, we have this problem, we've been investing millions of dollars helping these small farmers increase productivity because we're in cocoa supply and um, we can't really predict our supply chain, uh, our supply, because uh, productivity is always kind of unpredictable. And they've been investing in economic sort of um, factors of that and um, doing uh, general agricultural practices investments Uh, and using economic terms to determine whether that's working or not. So they wanted us to do a qualitative study. And as part of that qualitative study, what we learned led to multitude of studies that eventually led to millions of dollars in investments in some of the most effective development work that I've seen and something that we are very, very proud of. Um, And that led to investments in next generation of farmers, investments in finance um, uh, sort of literacy for women, investments in well-being of farming families, investments in farmer groups, and so forth and so on. Um, and what I've learned from that uh, engagement is that we traditionally go to the private sector saying, hey, private sector, this community has this problem, why don't we get some money from you to fix this problem? Well, if we just tip that uh, a little bit and look at it from a different perspective, hey, private sector, what's your problem here? And look at their problem and how can developing development community help solve their problem, particularly in supply chains? where it pains them and they have money to invest in supply chains, we might actually end up um, furthering development goals. And just one other point uh, related to sustainable development goals and generally related to the measurements. uh, While it's obviously very difficult to uh, identify identify the common measures, um, in effect, I've seen many, many private sector companies be interested in some of the key uh, s- uh, sustainable development goals and looking at uh, issues that are common, particularly for, su- for su- supply chains, such as making sure that all um, those in supply chains actually have minimum, um, you know, uh, standard of living or things like that would be something to aim for that is um, relatively easy to advocate for.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Okay, and this woman back there,
2: please,
0: thank you.
3: Hi, my name is Kelly Maddock and I work with International Medical Corps and I would love to hear your thoughts on, it's kind of a conundrum when we talk about reporting and monitoring and evaluation and these standards because we have the investors saying we need standards, we need you know um, things that go across the board so that we can tell our investment is working. But when you go down into the communities, they don't have uh, reliable electricity, or they may not have phones. They technology may break because they don't have access to air conditioning and things that prevent humidity from destroying technology. So how do we talk to investors in a way that also empowers the communities? Because even one grant for technology, well, it breaks. And so what do we do and how do we empower communities and how do we also talk about the standards that we're wanting to um, come up with?
1: Okay, great, okay. Richard? Yeah, first of all, I um, totally agree with your point. Um, I think, start, as I, I, think I said this at the beginning, I think starting with, what is this, Deirdre calls, it has this great framing called the solvable problem. What, what is the solvable problem in the sustainable development goals that you're trying to solve? I guarantee you a company has that same problem. If you're talking about low workforce uh, you know, training and education, that's a company problem. If you're talking about p- bad infrastructure, that's a company problem. You're talking about corruption, that's a company problem. Those, the, they all face those problems. And I would suggest, again, coming back to Melissa's original question about how do we do this, uh, USAID has a great a mechanism, um, the, the CDCS and the APS, I can never remember what they stand for, the c- the country development, co- the Cooperative like the Development plan. Country Strategy, country, country development, plans. right, the, the, the country plans, where I- in theory what they do is they go and they talk to the country and say to the government, and say <laughs> what do you want, what do you need, same thing, and man, start, start with talking to companies in those, in those areas, what are you doing, what do you need uh, in order to do that? The, the long history of philanthropy has generally been rich people telling poor people what they need, uh, and we need to reverse that model, and that also, you know, that, that, that means businesses too, right? Those, the, those guys that are out there selling things on the, on the, on the, on the street side, they're business people, they're also poor, <laughs> so we need to think about how do we engage them and, and really try to solve their problems. The question you asked in the back, that's it seemed to me like you were kind of thinking, you were using the the term investor rather broadly to mean both donor as well as capital investor. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so again, I think that's really um, very difficult to assess because there's this thing called materiality um, in accounting terms, and that assessing whether something constitutes a material. Risk or material interest to a business varies widely from company to company, from sector to sector. It's a material risk. You know, as as a small professional services firm, uh, you know, um, employee development is a material interest to us. It's material risk to us. Um, Our environmental footprint is 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 really taken up in laptops. It's not. Uh, and and probably air travel. So those are our material risks. Those are much different than the material risks for a mining company. So trying to think about how we assess that is really hard. But again, I would say, I would point to how can we look at, and this is super boring, but how can we look at at actuarial tables and how can we help companies better price and risk? And then if if you can do that, if you can help them get better fidelity on where true risks lie and where the true material opportunities are for them, explain that to people who provide insurance and who provide loans and who provide bonds to companies, they'll start to pay a a different kind of attention to it, uh, and you'll at least have a common language and a common framework. The SDGs get a lot of criticism, but I will say that that is one thing that they have given us is a set of common frameworks to, to think about, and helping companies and helping the people who assess their risk. Uh, better understand the opportunity and the common language within the SDGs. I think is is part of the gateway there. Richard, could
0: you just comment on this issue of of governance? If I think about oh. multi-stakeholder yeah. partnerships, yep. a lot of them require you know oddball kind of arrangements on governance. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so I actually think uh, Richard's uh, comment back there was uh, quite
1: yeah. I think there's there's, yeah, there's two sides to that. One one is governance uh, within a company or within within a, a nonprofit itself. The governing board. Uh, I think there's a lot more attention that needs to be paid to this. Governance is a fancy word for decision making. How do we make decisions and how do we make sure that the people who are making those decisions have the best interests of the company, the shareholders, and their stakeholders, uh, or in the case of a nonprofit, uh, those the, you know, the, of the donors and of the, the beneficiaries, how do they keep those in mind? Uh, Most, many corporate boards, many nonprofit boards, are full of the friends of the executive director, the friends of the CEO. That needs to change. I I don't believe
0: that. I cannot believe
1: that. (laughs) It is a true fact. It is a true fact. Um, And I think we we need we need to have better uh, use of independent directors Uh, when it comes to governing uh, multi-stakeholder partnerships. That's that's really quite difficult because. You have an issue of power dynamics there, and I think Joanna can really address this um, very thoroughly in what she's doing on the ground in the Niger River Delta because you have differences in how a donor is perceived versus a multinational corporation, the government, the, the local communities, and how you set up governance for those so that people have voice um, and control. and. It comes down, I think there's one fundamental principle that we use when we try to set up governance for multi-stakeholder partnerships, and it is that the decision-making process must be fair, transparent, and very well understood. Uh, And and The reason why we generally, not always, but generally accept the outcomes of elections in democratic societies is because it meets that standard. So you need to make sure that the governance model that you're establishing uh, meets that standard uh, as well. Joanna?
2: So that, that was actually really interesting. And I, I spend a lot of time on governance. You know, one of our key roles is around governance. So these these governance systems, structures, and processes are really critical. And we take them very seriously. And I think one thing I've learned is there really is no shortcut. You really have to talk with everyone. You have to collect ideas. You have to help people see themselves in their in their thinking in those ideas. And you have to drive those decisions forward that people can agree on and buy into. And uh, they have to be, I think you're right, fair, transparent, and well understood in terms of, and that, that governs for us at NDPI, and then for Chevron with the GMOUs. How are you making decisions? Why are you investing in certain areas, in certain geographies, in certain topics? People have to understand that and they have to feel that they've been heard and that you're not playing favorites and that's really critical. Um, And and that goes to the risk appetite. And I think that the, the idea of risk has come up a couple times but it kind of underlies everything we're talking about. For USAID, and I would like to take a step back and just say USAID does it better than anyone in the world. USAID has driven forward the concept of working with the private sector in a way that no other agency has. And I don't want us to lose that fact as we think about ways that USAID can improve and move forward. That has just really, as I've looked at different places around the world, what USAID has done is really remarkable and I don't want us to forget that. And I think the US private sector that's engaged with USAID has been part of that development. So it's something to really be proud of. Um, But underlying all those decisions taken is this, question of risk. And it is no joke dealing with US taxpayer dollars. It is also no joke dealing with um, company shareholder dollars. So finding that governance element that allows you to make decisions and take really carefully calculated risks, but but where we are in the Niger Delta, there is a lot of risk around financial integrity, so really being cautious, careful, defined, and transparent about those decisions, and when you take risks and why, or maybe we'll invest in this particular sector, or we'll invest in this particular um, investment vehicle. Those decisions have to be really carefully made. So I, I do want to highlight the fact that you, you cannot walk away from or in any way you know sh- short circuit those governance processes because the risks are tremendous and I think to, to the question of the so I'll just say a word about our board at NDPI we are a 501c3 uh, organization so we have a mixed board we have um, three Chevron slots and then we have five independent slots and those independent folks are I mean superstar knowledgeable Nigeria and social responsibility experts. Um, and in that dynamic between the company folks who really still have some responsibility for the financial resources and the independent folks who really know their stuff in terms of the substance, it creates a very, very strong governance and oversight and substantive input model that um, that, that that then is reflected on the ground with our with our um, sister board that has a similar profile. So, again, governance is a is a key theme. I think of anything that you would do, and we we shouldn't ever shortchange it. So, thanks for bringing
3: that up, Melissa. Thank you. Um, I thought I'd make a quick comment to, is it Azra? Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for your comment. And one of the points that you made, um, I believe you made many, was about approaching the private sector. And, um, I, and one of the questions you raised was um, asking the, the question you know, what's your problem or what's your challenge? I'd like to suggest turning that question around a bit and asking a business what do you need? Um, what do you need to expand? What's in, and um, to, to demonstrate this, I thought I'd tell a quick story, because um, I want to seed to, to Kai quickly, um, about um, AgriLand, which is a business that uh, the USAID, the Jobs Opportunities and Business Success Project, is working with in Tunisia. Um, it's a young company. Um, it works in the essential, um, extracting essential oils. and. Um, some of its clients include uh, Dior and Chanel, so it has some big uh, market potential. Um, one of their, um, uh, one of the biggest inputs that they need is uh, wild, wild rosemary um, which happens to grow in uh, large uh, large tracts of land um, in a mountainous region uh, in in Tunisia and it's a it's an area that is owned by the government but the rosemary is extracted by thousands of farmers and so in um, in a facilitative uh, I would say a facilitative deal um, in which uh, the USAID project or the USAID was Project and, and aid in particular was pivotal. Um, the Ministry of Agriculture um, sat down with Agriland, and, and they um, they agreed on a deal in which uh, Agriland would um, have uh, the rights uh, to collect uh, rosemary from this large uh, area of land, and Agriland uh, committed to provide social welfare, uh, social security, the equivalent contributions for the thousands of farmers in this area. This was a benefit that they they didn't have access to before. In addition, um, as part of the arrangement with uh, the USAID project, um, there was a commitment by the company because they're interested in expanding their supply to the markets that they have and improving the quality of the rosemary was to cost share uh, with uh, with the project, um, expertise to be able to um, improve the quality and, and their their yield and and their cultivation, and you know in this in this case um, again I I think it's a it's an example of a win 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 in which you know the government is able to um, provide social contributions to. Um, Thousands of individuals, and Agriland is able to um, expand its, um, or it has access to supply, and it's a market opportunity. Um, just, uh, just I wanted to return full, full circle to that, though, in terms of you know approaching the private sector um, with that question, what's your need? I find myself, you know, I wasn't there at the, you know, how did that situation come together you know what, what was the magic that brought these groups together and it might be provocative for me to say too, as um, you know representing Comonix here too but I would say that we are in need of some uh, innovative approaches to be able to have this discussion with the private sector it's like the RFPs or the request for proposals is not something necessarily you know accessible um, you know to you know to the private sector per se and we had a, a you know we spoke with um with, uh, with a with another business that we're working with Lebanon that's a owner of Diaspora ID and we worked with her and and in like um, increasing user adoption of her application, and she said, "But you know what? The way that this worked for me is that there were champions within USAID and with you know within the um, in Lebanon, and that's how I got to know that there might be an opportunity for me to try to merge what I was doing um, with um, the growth of my company as well. And so I applaud the efforts of um, USAID in establishing a private sector engagement team, and I think that you know that in addition to some other um, strategies will just help the bringing together, you know, of, the, of these ideas and champions.
4: Sure. Um, I think I'll also pick up on Azra's story uh, there about the poverty study that she did and the focus on uh, small, small-scale small farmers. And it reminds me of work I did years ago um, when I was working at Management Systems International. Hi, Molly Hedgebeck over there. Um, we, uh, years ago, we, we tried to put the focus on microfinance back on the client. At that time, there was one loan product and you took it if you wanted it. If you didn't, you're out of luck. So the idea was to put the client at the focus. What do they need or what do they want? How could they excel? And I think that um, when development is done well, um, it's looking at the needs of the community or the populace or the, the, the client. And I think that's what private sector, and obviously there's a variety of, as you mentioned before, Michael, um, variety of different um, actors in private sector. But when private sector businesses, when they're thinking about who their market is, who their clients are, they're thinking about their needs and their wants and how it's going to grow. And that's when it's done really well. And that's when you design products or provide products that um, either uh, fly or or don't. So I think that... um, Thinking now about, um, I read a story recently um, on Reuters about the internet economy. I think it's $100 billion a year right now. In Asia, it's in Southeast Asia, it's um, supposed to be $300 billion by 2025. And much of that, of course, is in the services sector. Um, so if, um, if it's done right, this has a huge potential for growth. However, if it's only businesses who are driving this and doing this, Um, They're going to, I think, run into constraints because my work with other organizations that focuses on governance and public policy, it can be cut off right away by a poorly constructed government policy or uh, what what is supposed to be good for the beneficiary or whatever can cut it off. Example, uh, I worked many years in the Philippines and the Philippines has a lot of medical transcription, outsourcing, internet-based economy. Um, the Supreme Court was asked to rule whether VOIP, the Voice Over Internet Protocol, was a telecom, was it re- going to be regulated like a telecom, or an added service. This is a small little term, but if it's, inter- if it's uh, regulated like a telecom, that requires maybe a government franchise or a congressional franchise uh, constrained by, government, by um, foreign ownership. So it could have crushed the um, the services industry in the Philippines overnight by um, regulation poorly written or a Supreme Court uh, decision. So I think it's a combination of businesses who are focused on the client but also Development partners, policymakers, host governments, and putting together good enabling environment and good policies so that this flourishes. So I think the public Great. and the private is important.
0: Okay, Michael, one minute.
4: One minute. All right. Well, I got. Um,
5: the question about the Amazon because it touches on um, due diligence and, and risk mitigation, which is our issues that have come up, which is is important. We do have a significant due diligence policy that any uh, formal or informal agreement with private sector partners that we need to go through. Our lawyers are involved, so uh, you know it's a fair question. And no, we wouldn't take those um, those ten million dollars. But an interesting anecdote. I, I kept hearing governance in this last round. The issue of governance, and um, you know, so just in the Amazon writ large, our theory there is that there are deforestation is driven by economic drivers, and there needs to be a sustainable economic solution to address those drivers. Um, We've uh, invested in convening, Melissa, talking about interesting mechanisms rather than kind of one-offs or or champions. We invest in convening platforms. So we invest to bring together uh, private sector and like-minded actors with the sole purpose of convening and and seeing where it goes. So our partnership platform for the Amazon, you can Google this or or look it up, I don't know if Google's still here, Um, and see what the PPA is up to. Interestingly though, they they are helping us with uh, due diligence because the like-minded, Private sector actors they, they lead this platform, and uh, they're looking also for a sustainable economic uh, model for the Amazon. Michael, uh, Michael, sorry. And um, the—they're um, getting involved in the in the in the due diligence. Uh, how the processes of going through what other companies can be a part of this platform because we share this common goal. So due diligence is a is an, an important factor. I did want to touch on. Uh, International Medical Corps' point about evidence and learning, but I'll, I'll leave it at that. Maybe we can have it
10: in discussion.
0: Please, we got to stop here. Please join me in thanking the panel.